Well, hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Brienne. Today's guest is another guest from our friends over at C.S. Lewis and Company Publicists, Mr. Sean T. Ryan. Uh, this interview was really great. Sean has this concept of uh, gears. The title of his book is Get in Gear, the seven gears that drive strategy to results. And uh, I think these gears are very well put together, very well constructed, and uh, will help you improve your leadership and success in your organization. So I don't have a lot more to say about it because Sean does a really great job of going over these uh, gears in the interview. So I'm just going to cut straight to it and let you listen to the conversation between myself and Sean Ryan. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Today, my guest is a world-renowned business consultant, speaker, trainer, and executive coach. As the founder of Whitewater International Consulting, he has worked internationally with companies such as Disney, Nucor Steel, FedEx, and Nestle Waters North America, Perrier Group of America. With more than two decades of industry experience, Sean is highly regarded for his ability to guide organizations through complex transformational change in what he describes as a world of perpetual white water. This guest is Mr. Sean Ryan. Sean, thank you for joining us today. Earl, thanks a bunch for having me on today. Yeah, not a problem. Not a problem at all. I'm looking forward to this uh, discussion. And, uh, you know, for, for the listeners, one of the things we're going to be talking about today is kind of a backdrop with our conversation is Sean's book, uh, Get in Gear, The Seven Gears That Drive Strategy to Results. Uh, I've had a chance to, to review the book and, and uh, give it a good look over. And, uh, you know, th- this is a great book. I love these gears that you've identified. They they fall very much in line with what my partner and I at the Leadership Phalanx talk about leadership uh, that we learned from the DOD that we've kind of brought to some of our civilian counterparts now. So uh, so I, I think this is going to be a really good conversation. Great. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So um, let me go ahead and get you started. Uh, my guests or my, my listeners are expecting this question. Uh, when you hear the phrase burden of command... What does that mean to you? Right. Uh, Earl, it's a great question. And I, I would I would maybe twist it a little bit. And, and how we think about leadership is leaders, one of the components of great leadership is you've got this stewardship responsibility uh, in your organizations. You, you've got a stewardship responsibility for the organization itself, which can be the brand, the assets, the success of it, um, the idea of, of doing the things necessary to perpetuate the long-term success of the organization. You've got a stewardship responsibility for your team, uh, the people in the organization to help them be the best that they possibly can be, create an environment where everybody can uh, feel like they belong, where you've got equity. And, and in particular, where people can bring the best of who they are and what they are to the forefront every day and everything they do. And then the, the third big component of stewardship, and obviously there, there are more components to it, but the, the third component of stewardship is you've got a stewardship responsibility for the relationship with your customers uh, or, or the people that get value out of the organization if you're a government or nonprofit organization. So, you know, understanding what their needs are, how you create value for them, and constantly working to create the kind of value that people expect from your organization. So I, I guess in the, in the context of a burden, you've, you've got to carry this burden of, of stewardship with you in everything that you do every day. Oh, I, I love that. That's a great, that's a great answer. Very, uh, I, and you're right. Um, I mean, everything you said is spot on. So I, I've got nothing to really, uh, really add to that. That was a good, good response. Um, so now I've got to say this. I'm a huge fan of design and messaging matching. You know, for for instance, uh, our logo at the Leadership Phalanx, we talk about, uh, you know, the Phalanx formation was was an ancient uh, formation using interlocking shields. 
we teach 11 shields, and so our logo, we have intentionally 11 interlocking shields as part of our logo. What I love about your book is you, the seven gears that drive strategy to results, and you have one gear marked strategy on the left-hand side, and another gear marked strategy or marked results on the right-hand side. And then you've got the seven gears represented in, in the logo. But even better, like I love chapter one because it puts the, the point home. The strategy, uh, what you call the strategy to results gap, and how these gears kind of fit in to get you from strategy to result. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. How did you kind of come up with that, kind of that iconography, if you will? That was uh, that was a pretty long journey within the context of of writing the book, uh, and it it started with we knew about the strategy to results gap and we've worked with lots of organizations over the years on formulating strategy. We also knew that some of the organizations that we worked with and, and it's highly, you know, well represented in the, in the, in the literature organizations in general have a big challenge. Yeah, 75 to 90% of organizations out there have a gap between the results that they expect from their strategies and the results that they actually get. So we knew that existed. And we were, we were challenged probably 10 years ago by a client of ours to help figure out how to close the gap. And uh, we'll, we'll go into a lot more details behind that, I'm sure, as, as we go through this today. But so that, that really started kind of the journey of, okay, what are the pieces that we have to fit together to make that happen. Uh, and, and so when I, so long story short, cutting through a lot of things that happened over a period of time, when I finally sat down about three, three and a half years ago to write the book, we, we, we'd formed all the, the seven concepts that are in those seven gears that drive strategy to results. But I didn't have the icon. I didn't have the graphics. I didn't have the thought in my head. And we, we tried dozens of things, various kinds of rings and circles and pyramids and funnel models and all you know, process flows and all that kind of stuff. And, and things kind of worked, um, but they didn't really work. And I, I, I do have an engineering background, but the, but the seven gears, the way we represent them in the book, I, I wouldn't they're not like mechanical where you have to sit there and have an engineering degree to really understand. In fact, most of what's embedded inside the gears tend to be more people sorts of things than they, they tend to be mechanical engineering uh, gear kind of things. But it just struck me one day that in really when we're connecting strategy to results and working through what be, then became the seven gears, these, these concepts, they're absolutely interrelated to each other. But in some ways, they're also independent. And any one thought, we can get better, for instance, at setting result-oriented goals. Or we can get better at providing people with visible scorecards so they can track performance, see what the performance gap is. They're a little bit independent. And, and so all of a sudden, it struck me of there's like this gear chain that runs from strategy to results. And, and in that gear chain you have all kinds of friction. Some gears work a little bit better. Some gears work a little bit worse. And so what if, what if we had this construct around these seven gears and then we could help people think about how do I improve each gear independently, but then over time work on all of the gears so that they, they get a better transmission of the, of the energy that's in their strategy to the results that they actually want to achieve. So it wasn't, it wasn't like it was easy. <laughs> it didn't like pop off the page. It wasn't natural. Uh, but we, we played around with it for quite a while before we got to the construct. And then we, then we kind of went and tested it. I, I wouldn't call it test marketing because we weren't really trying to market it at that point, but it was test the concept. And, and we shared the concept with a lot of people and got feedback and, People from all walks of life, different places, different kind of backgrounds kind of told us, man, the, the, that gear concept, that, that makes a little bit of sense. I see how that works. So we, it, it kind of stuck. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's what I really like about it is it, it does, it, it makes sense. And, you know, like you said, you don't really need an engineering background. Most of us, whether it's from, you know, riding a bike or just playing with toys as a kid, we understand, at least at a fundamental level, how gears work and interact with one another. And uh, so it doesn't surprise me that it resonated because it's, it's a good, I mean, it's a very good uh, icon there to, to represent everything. Um. So now, in this first chapter, and, and I love the way you, you phrase some of this stuff, because I'm kind of a straight talker myself, and, and I love, you have one section titled, Moving Beyond a Strategy of Just Sucking Less. And that resonated <laughs> with me so much, because, yeah, for I've ran into it uh, myself. A lot, of, a lot of times that is, it's just, it's just we just want to suck less. And, and, and that's not a winning strategy right uh, not at all uh, you know and the idea is man if i if i just suck less than the competition right um if i just suck a little bit less next year than we do this year we'll be better off we can make some kind of incremental improvements and that that fundamentally doesn't work because we live in an incredibly dynamic world uh, you talked about at the beginning at the introduction my company, you know, Whitewater International Consulting, and and I named it that in in part because even though I do have a civil engineering degree uh, from Georgia Tech, they were kind enough to give me the degree. Uh, I actually majored in backpacking and whitewater kayaking, so that's that's part of what's in the uh, in in the name. But the but the real idea behind the whole, you know, whitewater metaphor is we do live in this world of perpetual whitewater. Every, and if we didn't think that before, say, early February this year, we have to believe that now. Uh, yeah. we're just, we just have to constantly in organizations deal with turbulence. Sometimes it's things that are completely out of our control, like COVID, and how do we adapt and react to it. Other times it's the technology is changing on us. Our customers' needs and expectations are uh, changing on us. Um, the competition is changing. Uh, so there's all this stuff that's, that's going on around us. And the organizations that survive that uh, are highly adaptable and nimble. So how's that, how's that dial back to a strategy of just sucking less? Well, if you just suck a little bit less, what you're not really doing is thinking about what do, what do we have to do to create value for our stakeholders, in particular, our customers. Again, whether it's a profit or a for-profit or a non-profit or a governmental organization, whatever it might be, how do we create value for the audience that we're trying to create value for? And if we're just trying to be a little bit better, we're probably not really completely understanding what that is. Uh, and we're probably not doing the, the significant change sorts of things that we need to be doing to really thrive uh, you know, when, when times are reasonably well, if, if we're not really knocking the cover off the ball, then when we have to go through disruptions like COVID or disruptions like a new competitor uh, enters our space or somebody invents a technology that dramatically changes how products or services are delivered in our industry, we're, we're not putting, a, you know, uh, squirreling away the acorns. We need to be squirreling away to deal with that. And then all of a sudden you find yourself not relevant. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that was great. Like I said, I, uh, you know, I grew up in Northeast Tennessee, so, you know, I don't know if you ever got into that area when you were down in Georgia tech. Uh, but, uh, you know, I grew up in the Appalachian mountains and, uh, <laughs> when I read that and, and how you explained it, it reminded me, you know, we had a, all saying says, uh, you know, when you're getting chased by a bear, you don't have to be the fastest runner. You just have to be happy. You just have to be faster than the other guy. Well, but you're still being chased by a bear. Right? <laughs> so right. just being faster right. isn't good enough. Right. Well, and, and Earl, I think it's a phenomenal metaphor. I mean, and, and we've all used that the idea of, you know, you see the bear in the woods and I bend over and I put my running shoes on and you don't. And you say, what are you doing, Sean? You can't outrun a bear. And I say, well, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you, right? But here's the challenge. And we, we've seen this in industry after industry, which is 
maybe I can outrun you today. And the bear gets you, not me. But that bear, to your point, is still chasing. And you just you look at so many industries, in particular in the United States, that have ascent, over a period of time have essentially just been driven out of you know relevance um, because of competition uh, internationally or competition from technology. Um, and so the the bear is always coming. And and so the and so I think that that creates a couple things. First of all, it means we have to have good strategy. So we have to understand how we create value. And then we especially have to execute strategy really well so that we can create the value for people that we say we're going to create, but also so that we can feed our balance sheet, our financial balance sheet, our balance sheet with our customers, our balance sheet with our employees, our teams, so that we have things in the bank, whether that's a financial bank account or an emotional bank account, that when things do change, when the bear does become, get, gets close to catching up with us, we've got enough equity in on all of those balance sheets that we can continue to pivot. We can reinvent ourselves to stay at least one step ahead of the bear. Yeah, no, I like that. I, w- I would say this. I think there's only one time when just sucking less might be a good uh, strategy, and that's when you're talking about yourself, Right. If you're talking about continual improvement, the the whole philosophy of Kaizen, we want to, in a tongue-in-cheek way, we want to suck less today than we did yesterday. Uh, But as soon as you turn it to another, like you said, as soon as you turn it to another, like a competitor, uh, yeah, that that, that just shouldn't shouldn't be a goal. Um, Right, yeah. My my partner and I, we like to talk about... uh, the the concept and Simon Sinek has made these famous. He's he's beat me to the punch on this one. Uh, but finite and infinite games, and uh, you know basically that that sucking less is a finite game because you know like we were talking about here using the bear analogy. Yeah, sure it works as long as there is somebody else for you to be faster than. But what happens when you're the last person left? Right. Whereas if you're playing the yeah. infinite game, you're worried about getting faster. Period not right. just faster than somebody else. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. And and look, in the short run, and, and we even think about it in terms of the, the seven gears that drive strategy to results. I One of the things that's a little bit different about that construct, and one of the reasons that the, the, the gear uh, construct works well is a lot of times, and there's been a lot of stuff written about strategy, driving strategy to execution, uh, there's a ton of literature out there, but in many of those, we, we try to get people to change everything all at once. And one of the nice things about the gears is the idea that I can be a little bit better tomorrow than I am today by just working on one gear. Uh, you know, I can, I can go out with my team today and we can have a conversation about, what are our goals as a team? What results are we trying to achieve? We can then talk about what's the stuff that's getting in our way. And tomorrow we can be more focused on the right goals than we are today. And we'll be a little bit better. So we don't have to fix all seven gears today, but we can fix one and be better. And so, you know, to to the point that you're making that, that Simon Sinek makes, that there are places along all of the gears that, Maybe it's okay today to just suck a little bit less than we did yesterday or suck a little bit less than our competition does as long as we don't get complacent and decide it's okay to just suck less. It's that idea of, you know, the, the infinite gain. How do we, how do we keep improving at, at as fast as we possibly can, whether it's one gear, two gears, all the gears over a period of time so that at some point in the future, it's not that we just suck a little bit less, but we're actually really good at this stuff. And we really are driving our strategy to the results that we expect to get from it. Outstanding. Outstanding. Okay. So we've talked a lot about these gears. We go ahead and, and introduce, uh, introduce listeners to what they are. So you have uh, first gear, and I, uh, I'm not sure if these are, do, do you see these in a particular order of importance or did you just kind of randomly one through seven? 
the, the somewhere in between. Um, and so uh, kind of how they developed actually gears uh, four through seven developed first. Uh, and uh, if I can take you through that, if, if, if you want me to. Yeah, go ahead and um, introduce us to these gears. Sure. So I'm going to, I'm going to introduce them in kind of backwards order. Okay. So when we were, when we were first challenged by a client and, and it was an organization that had a, a, a good strategy, they didn't necessarily have great execution of their strategy, like many others, you know, that 75 to 90% that aren't really knocking the cover off the ball in terms of uh, connecting their strategy to the results that they expect. But it was a, it was a good organization with good people uh, and they had good strategy, but they weren't getting the execution that they wanted. And, and so we were, we were challenged to help them figure out how to do that. And, and so the, the first what really came together first is what we now call the gears four through seven. And as John Cruck, the baseball player said um, many years ago, this, this isn't exactly rocket surgery. Um, You know, the, uh, you know, you start with what seems like a pretty basic, simple idea. You know, gear four is set result oriented goals. People need to have goals. They need to have something that they're trying to achieve. And you would be shocked at the number of organizations that we go into, uh, and, and we talk about it in the book a little bit, where people don't have goals or they don't know what their goals are uh, or they're not aligned to what their managers think their goals are. And, and we've played this game. We call it five on five, not basketball, though it has a very basketball overtones to it. We play this game called five on five, where we'll ask performers to write down what they think their top five goals or expectations are. And then we'll ask their managers to also write down a list of what they think the top five goals are for the people that report to them. So we've got two theoretically matching lists of five goals. On average, how many match? Well, the the average is something a little bit less than two. I think over the, you know, thousands upon thousands of repetitions, it rounds to 1.98, as long as we give really liberal credit for the language that people use. So 40% of the time, people are aligned and focused on the right stuff, according to their bosses, and 60% they're not. So, you know, the idea of result-oriented goals. So, people are aligned to goals that connect to the strategy of the organization. And then, then the second thing we talked about just in terms of individual or team performance is the idea of visible scorecards. People play better when there's a visible scorecard that's aligned to the strategy. And the, the analogy that I love is if you drive down the street, and you see kids playing basketball on two courts next to each other, or they're playing soccer on two soccer fields next to each other. And on one of those courts or one of those fields, the kids are keeping score. And on the parallel court or parallel field, the kids are not keeping score. How quickly would it take you to figure out which basketball court the kids are keeping score on and which ones they're not keeping score on. Um, Pretty quick. Most of the people I talk to, most of the times we've done the experiment, within literally seconds, you can tell, right? And right. so, you know, gear, gear five is around having visible scorecards because people work harder, more intensively when they've got a scorecard aligned to their goals that represents what they need to accomplish. Uh, and then, so that now we've got goals and we've got scorecards. Then it becomes a matter of what do people actually do? And in, in gear six, we call it the performance drivers. That's fancy language, but the idea behind the fancy language is it encompasses the critical tasks, behaviors, actions that people take. And, and so it becomes very universal. If you're talking about applying strategy, execution results to project management, it becomes the work breakdown structure that's in a project. Uh, if you're talking about you know day in, day out performance, it's the critical activities people undertake. And, and what we've observed is 
in every walk of life in almost anything people do, whether it's leadership or it's, you know, performing a job in a manufacturing facility or it's selling or it's being a great customer service rep. There are things, there are specific behaviors and tasks and activities that the great performers do that are different than what average or mediocre performers do. And so identifying those performance drivers, teaching them, and then working through the elements of deliberate practice to help people hone those skills and capabilities tends to result in a higher level of performance. Mm. And then very logically, uh, gear seven uh, is what we call the follow-up, follow-through, managing the cycle, the rhythm of follow-up, follow-through. Now, what's a little bit different about our approach on gear seven than you know others might take is a lot of times we just call that accountability. And accountability is absolutely important. It's the glue that holds everything together. But in follow-up, follow-through, before we get to accountability, we have to get to the learning piece. If, if performance isn't where we want it to be, or if behavior is outside the boundaries of our value set, the first question we have to ask is, why is this happening? Uh, what can we learn from this? Uh, if you think about it in terms of performance, do we have the goal right? Are we giving people the right scorecard so that it's reinforcing the, the right effort? Uh, do we have the performance drivers outlined correctly? And are people executing on those performance drivers or are they getting sucked down into the mess that, that surrounds all of us every day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we can all fill our days with all kinds of things that don't really matter. Sometimes that's driven by the organization. Sometimes that's driven because we just make bad decisions about how we allocate our time. So that, that gear number seven, follow up, follow through, encourages the learning first. Let's, let's see why we're off track. And then over a period of time, there has to be accountability. People have to be accountable for performance. So those were, even though they're gears four through seven, those are the those were the first ones that we uh, pulled together uh, to to really help individuals, teams be able to perform. We call them the performance gears because if you if you just at any level of the organization, if you just or even individually, personally, if you just apply those gears you're going to be better off in generating the kind of results that you want than if you don't apply those gears. Yeah. Now, again, just because I've, I've, I've already paid so much compliment to the, uh, to the design, what I love is, is if you look at the logo on the cover of the book, those four gears are a different color than the other three uh, to, to kind of signify that they, they stand a little bit different. Right. Uh, now, let me ask you a question here about, about the last one, uh, yeah. the follow-up, follow-through, because you, you use the word accountability. And, you know, maybe you've got a different point of view on this than I, but um, I, I, I've ran into situations where that's always used in the negative connotation of the word. Accountability equals discipline. In my opinion, that's not always the case. Accountability should also encompass like a reward recognition system, right? Absolutely. And look, I think accountability, how we've used it in organizations, has earned its reputation. Right. <laughs> um, you know, the the leader who says, I'm going to hold you accountable, right? Oh. That doesn't feel too good. Um you know, that feels like when I would get home from school and uh, my mom would say, hey, you need to go see your dad right now. Um, that, that didn't necessarily always feel uh, so good. Right. Um, but to your point, accountability, the, the actual definition of accountability is just the consequences that go along with any kind of behavior or result. Right. Mm-hmm. So. That can be, there should be lots and and there probably needs to be more of it in our organizations, positive accountability and recognizing that, look, sometimes there are going to be some negative consequences that go along with performance. If we're, if we're playing outside the, or in the gray area, uh, near the values of our organization, uh, or if we're not performing at the level that we need to perform at, uh, 
or have performed at in the past. I think it's it's okay for there to be, uh, you know, some kind of negative consequences for that, which might be as simple as let's have a coaching counseling conversation about what I have to do to get my performance back on track with what's with what's possible. Right. And, and, and we, in the book, we take it even a step further, which is we actually want to create organizations, not where leaders have to hold people accountable, you know, being held accountable, but we want to create organizations where people are accountable, that, that you have so much control over the performance that you generate that it's easy to be accountable right? Because yep. I can succeed. I can win. I've got the opportunity to contribute. So far better than being held accountable is just the idea of being accountable, accountable. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, that was the, I mean, what you just said right there, that was kind of the cornerstone of, of Marine Corps discipline uh, is every Marine is accountable for every other Marine. And so you had this built in, system where when when you saw somebody uh who was who was out of line like i love to share this story because it's, it's such a it's such a great story so uh, towards the end of of marine corps boot camp uh you have they call it team week and depending on your platoon there's kind of a rating system and all this good stuff but depending on what you get uh how your platoon performs you know, you get to work at the chow hall. You get to work out cleaning up, uh, uh, cleaning up the, uh, the the common areas. There's just a bunch of different jobs to get uh, handed out. Well, one of my friends, he was on uh, cleanup duty. You know, they were out pulling weeds, picking up trash, all that good stuff. Well, there's this thing in the Marines. They're always yelling at us whenever they see uh, whenever they see us with their hands in their pockets. Marines don't stand with their hands in their pockets, and then they go into this whole thing about how, you know, what if the enemy were to come up behind you and just put you in a bear hug? Now your hands are trapped in your pockets. You can't get them out, and you're at a tactical disadvantage. And so, my buddy, we haven't graduated yet, so that means we're still recruits. You know, we're, we're less than privates. We're still recruits. He sees uh, a Marine uh, standing with his back to my friend, and he's got his hands in his pockets. And he goes up and he says, uh, excuse me, sir, Marines aren't supposed to stand with their hands in their pockets. The Marine turns around and it happened to be the Commandant of the Marine Corps, Charles Krulak. He was on base. Nobody knew that he was there. But we had just started. We were like the 4th, 5th platoon and went through his project. Uh, it was called the Crucible, which was kind of the defining moment for graduating boot camp, but he was on base to, to uh, kind of see how that was going. So here's this person who, if you're talking about corporate speak, was basically like the lowest of the low person on the totem pole. So, you know, let's, let's think maybe, depending on your, how your organization views the janitor, a janitor, and this would be the CEO. And what was great about this interaction, as soon as Commandant Krulak turns around, you know, he sees the brass, he kind of puts two and two together, sees who he is. You know, my friend, he snaps to attention and like he's he's afraid of what's getting ready to happen because he just told the commandant of the Marine Corps, don't stand with your hands in your pocket. And what was great about it is, is Commandant Krulak turns around and looks at him and goes, you know what, Marine, you're right. And he reaches in his pocket and he hands him a commandant's challenge coin. And that was it. He took his hands That's out of fantastic. his pocket, dismissed the guy and went on down the road doing his thing. And it was great because he could have been, you know, he could have taken this position. He's the commandant of the Marine Corps. This is a recruit telling him what to do. He could have yelled. He could have screamed. He could have done all those stereotypical things. But he just simply acknowledged, you know what, Marine? You're right. That's not what we do. And he fixed himself and he moved on. And I, I, to this day, that story just gives me chills whenever I tell it because how many CEOs have you ran into, even the greatest ones, that if a janitor told him, hey, you're not living to your organization's values, wouldn't at least bristle a little bit about being told <laughs> what they're not doing right? Uh, I think there are a lot of people that are out there like that. And uh, fortunately, uh, a lot of the CEOs I've had the opportunity to work with have the same uh, 
you know, level of understanding of themselves, the same humility, the same ability to focus on the critical issues in their organizations, that they would take that feedback pretty much the way the commandant did. But I, I, Earl, it's a fantastic story of there, there's a subtle little bit of accountability, right? That was applied. It doesn't have to be a negative thing. It's a learning opportunity and uh, it turns into a really positive experience for both of the people that were involved in it. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. So we talked about gears four through seven. So let's, let's say uh, you will go ahead and do a quick intro in, in one through three, and then we can do a little sure. deeper dive. Yeah, that'll be great. And so, so we, we built gears four through seven for the specific purpose of helping people in a specific, you know, few organizations to be more successful and better at driving their organization's strategy to results. And it really is just cascading goals, scorecards, performance drivers, and a follow-up follow-through process from the top of the organization to the front line of the organization to get everybody aligned. When, but then the model, the thinking, the construct began to evolve a little bit. And I was forced to think I had other organizations begin to approach me and talk about how do we apply this in our organizations. And I had to take a step back and think, okay, so if we, if we just did those four things, what are the odds that this organization is going to be successful? And, and my internal talk was, eh, they would get somewhat better, but this isn't going to be, these are all necessary, but they're clearly not sufficient. So what else would it take? What other big things might we need to bring to bear that would be helpful? And and that thinking ended up evolving to what we now call the foundation gears or the environment gears. So there, there are these three other gears that need to be in place and need to be reasonably well lubricated and connected to the other gears to enable real success. So gear number one, uh, where you tried to start a little bit ago, is the idea of right people in the right roles with the right capabilities. I, I, I don't think anybody thinks for a second that you can accomplish what you want to accomplish in organizations without the right people that fit your organization, your organization's strategy. You have to be able to recruit and develop the talent that you need to be able to be successful. And every organization that I've ever seen that wanted to get into a new market or a new technology, one of the first things they did was they said, who do we need to have on board to be able to do this and do this well? Um, so right people, right roles in the right, with the right capabilities. The second gear, then, if, if we're thinking about uh, how do we really drive strategy to results, is the idea of uh, the leader as organizational architect or aligning the organizational architecture to the strategy. So what do I mean by organizational architecture? It's the system structures, processes, and culture uh, that, that essentially, and, and we use the term in the book, the idea of creating uh, organizational gravity. And uh, I was working with a, an organization. We were going through a pretty significant amount of change. And one of the senior leaders in the room, and, and they, they'd been going through this change process for probably 12 months at that point in time. And there, there were days when it seemed like they were making progress. And there, there were other days like often happens in big organizational change where you just feel stuck in molasses. And the senior leader said, why does it feel like some days the change flows like the tides and other days we, we're just, we're just stuck. We can't make any progress. And so then my brain, I, I have no idea what happened in the rest of that conversation for the next half hour or so, because my brain went to why, what causes the tides to flow? Well, the tides flow generally because of gravity. What's the organizational equivalent of creating gravity? Well, it's system structures, processes, and culture. And so when you, when you align the things that create gravity to the direction you want to go, to the strategy you're trying to execute, execution gets a whole lot easier very quickly. So 
gear two ends up being, you know, uh, aligning the organizational architecture to the strategy. And, and then the third gear, and it almost seems like it ought to go without saying, but we have to say it anyhow, is the idea of creating a culture of communications. None of this stuff works if we can't communicate effectively up and down the organization, across the way, sideways. Uh, and, and that includes not just being clear about where we're going and what the, what the barriers are to being able to get there, which gets communicated up and down and sideways and through the organization. But it's also things like being able to hold the tough conversations. Um, and, and then one of the things, and sometimes, well, let me, let me change the, the focus a little bit. Most of the organizations we go into, communication is some, if not a large part of the problem. Uh, you know, I'd give the example of um, early in my career, I worked for an organization where I had I had pretty good mobility up and down the organization. And it was interesting. We'd talk to, I talked to senior leaders one day and they would talk about the need to get more focused on customers. They talked about the need to drive out bureaucracy, give people more uh, opportunity to be able to be successful, focus on our key stakeholders, you know, drive value for our key stakeholders. And then I'd, I'd, next day I'd be talking to frontline team members and they would be talking about the same kind of things, but in different language. You know, we need to do better, deliver better service, better value to our customers. We got all these stupid rules, policies, and procedures that get in our way and we can't really be successful. Um, there's this bureaucracy that keeps us from being able to make the kind of decisions we make. People really want to do a good job, but we just can't do the best that we possibly can. So the the language was very different, even though the, the themes were absolutely the same between the, the C-suite, the senior level leaders, and the, the frontline team members. And yet all of that language was completely disconnected. And as we thought about it, we coined the phrase, it's the marshmallow layer. The marshmallow layer is the stuff, squishy stuff mass in the middle of organizations that keeps information from being able to flow up, flow down, flow sideways, flow wherever, wherever it needs to go. And the interesting thing about the marshmallow layer is it, rarely is it intentional. Um, people just don't share complete information. Now, sometimes it's intentional. You know, you're on a need to know basis and you don't need to know, or I have power because I have information. So I'm going to withhold the information that I have so that I can, I can maintain my power. But most of the time it's like the telephone game that we played, uh, all of us played in second grade where the teacher says something to the first kid. And then you, you whisper in each other's ears all the way around the room. And then the teacher gets the message back at the other end of the room 20 kids later. And it's like, a, it's a completely radically different message. So the marshmallow layer really is just the telephone game played day in and day out. People sharing information, not sharing information, you know, maybe uh, filtering a little bit of the information that they share or filtering the information that they hear so they can't pass it on uh, correctly. And so that's, that's typical to some level in almost every organization. Now, there have been a few organizations we've been in, I call them unicorns, where the level of information, the level of communication uh, is so, I mean, it's just so there. Uh, we, were, we were doing some work in an organization probably five or six years ago now. It was an assessment. And uh, we, we go out and we had a team of about eight or 10 people interviewing the people in that organization, uh, usually on the, the first afternoon of assessment like that. We, everybody gets a couple practice interviews in. So we'd probably interviewed 20 or 30 people that first afternoon and we're, we're debriefing the team at the end of the day. And, and most of the team is our clients, uh, team members, and we're debriefing the, uh, the interviews at the end of the day and ask people to give me a general sense of, of what they had heard in the interviews and, and to a person they said that everybody they interviewed had said, this is the greatest place I've ever worked. Well, what makes it great? The leadership. Okay. Well, what makes the leadership great? They communicate with us. We can talk about anything, anytime they listen to us, they share with us information. The, the story that everybody told now, this is across 30 interviews that were conducted over a three hour period where none of the people we interviewed had a chance to talk to each other. Earl, it sounded like we were getting punked. Like it's not possible 
for every every one of those interviews that the first five to seven minutes of every interview, we got exactly the same feedback. But as we dove into it deeper, what we found was every one of those stories was real and genuine. And as we as we sat at dinner and over a couple glasses of wine that night, somebody said, I think I think we just crossed paths with a unicorn. And and so we started calling those organizations that have great cultures of communication unicorns because information flows up, flows down, flows sideways. People can challenge each other. They can push each other. And and then there's some things that those organizations absolutely share. And the the number one thing that those organizations share is a, a culture of trust and respect. Because you can't have the the intensity of conversation and communications that you need to have to be incredibly successful if you also don't have a foundation of trust and respect where everybody knows, I mean you no harm. I'm sharing this tough information with you because I want the best for you, not because I'm trying to get one up on you. And so those those three gears become the foundation of you know, right people, right roles with the right capabilities, aligning the system architecture to the place you're trying to get to, and then fostering this culture of communications so that we all know where we are. And it's okay to talk about the things that aren't going well, but we also celebrate the great successes of, of things that are going well on a regular basis. Yeah, man. No, I love everything you just said. And it, it's, it, it's, it's spooky. Like I said, there's a lot of crossover here. So, um, you know, what you were just talking about with communication, one of our shields is be a power broker. Information is power. And and we say a lot of those same things. And, you know, like I said, unless you're the only person at KFC that knows the Colonel's Secret 11 Herbs and Spices, you really don't have anything that is unshareable. Um, and, and I like what you said about how this organization with the trust and all that, because... I think what a lot of organizations miss is the opposite uh, of that is true. When you hoard information, when you don't share it, you leave these vacuums of information. And you know they, they taught us even in Northeast Tennessee in, in elementary science that nature abhors a vacuum. And it's going to fill that vacuum with something. And that something is always gossip and rumors. And gossip and rumors are always worst case scenario. And they're always wrong. But because of people are worrying about the possibility they could be true, you've just completely sapped productivity, innovation, loyalty, engagement, and all of those things because nine times out of ten, that person's afraid that they're going to be losing their job and they're off looking for another one on your dime. And it can all be avoided by effective communication, just sharing information. And so when I read that, I was like, yes, preach it. <laughs> because it was great. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. We, we call that vacuum. It, when, when that communication vacuum occurs, we, we say that uh, um, MSU happens. Well, what's MSU? Make stuff up. Oh. You know, people, to your point, nature abhors the vacuum. People make stuff up to fill the vacuum. And it's almost never good. Yeah. I mean, when, when is the last time? You've been in an organization and you heard somebody talking about the rumor mill that says, hey, you know, I heard we're going to get a 50% raise. They're going to give us two extra weeks of vacation. They're opening up a, a branch in Fiji. So all you got to do is put your name in a hat. If you want to go live in Fiji, you can go there and they're going to pay for your move. It's, it's the opposite. You know, they're going to cut like 50% of the jobs. You're not going to get, uh, you're not going to get your furlough, your pension shot, blah, 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 whatever it is. They're closing down branches. You're not going to be able to live where you want to live. Everybody's going to be holed up in Cleveland, Ohio. It's all bad. And, and, (laughs) but, but it's, it's, it's hard when, when, like you mentioned the culture, it's hard to really overcome that culture of protection and hoarding information because it's usually starts at the very core of the organization. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would, I would flip it the other way and say that if you want to have that culture of communications, if you want to have the unicorn, that absolutely starts at the core of the, uh, of the organization. And, 
you have to you have to build that culture over a period of time, and you only get there through uh, incredibly uh, insightful, determined leadership to create spaces where people can communicate that way. Well, Sean, we're sitting here at about fifty minutes already. Time has has flown. This has been a great, great conversation, and you know, I feel like we've probably only got about fourteen hours worth of conversation left uh, because this is com- some good stuff. Uh, but before before we move to close out, uh, I do want to touch on that first gear: the right people with the right capabilities in the right roles. What, in, in in your opinion, in your experiences, is the biggest obstacle to that gear? I think the the biggest challenge is really understanding what we want uh, in in the way of people. Uh, if I if I said, look, there's if I describe two clouds. And the cloud, one, the first cloud is the, the current state. Here's where we are today. And the, the other cloud is the, is the future state cloud. Here's, here's where we want to be to be really successful uh, in whatever industry or segment or nonprofit category that we're in. There are really two things that connect those clouds. One of the things that connects those clouds is the strategy. How do we position ourselves to be successful? How is it that we're going to create value? And then there's this intertwined, I'd almost call it an intertwined strand of DNA, which is what's the culture that we want that connects to the strategy and the, the two of them play together to propel us to that future state. And, and so the, the biggest challenge we often have is, uh, is, is even, first of all, understanding that culture is connected to the strategy and getting us to the place we want to go. Uh, and, then, and then finding the people who fit the, and, 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 you know, culture is a manifestation. It's what we allow to happen. It's the behavior that we allow to happen in our organization relative to our core value set. So what do we value? And, and so when you, when you think about how do we move our organization from where it is to the place we want to get to, you know, what's the strategy, what's the culture we want to have, and then what values do we need to have in place so that we can identify the people who are going to be really successful in our environment? I think that's a that's an interesting trick. And, you know, we were working with an organization a few years ago that uh, their strategy forever had been they had very uh, independent contributor salespeople. They were high performing, highly independent. They didn't want to talk to anybody else. Well, for a whole variety of reasons that we don't need to go into the details of here, that strategy changed and they all of a sudden needed their frontline salespeople to be great uh, be able to play well on a team and collaborate with each other and other people in the organization very effectively. So there was this whole shift that had to occur in in the values that they looked for. They needed to, they needed now, you know, if people can make the shift from being, and a lot of them did, a lot of those highly independent individual contributors, once it was clear that the organization needed to value teamwork more than it did, a lot of people made the shift and were able to do it. There were quite a few, there were quite a few people who couldn't make the shift and uh, ultimately, you know, couldn't stay in the organization. Most of them chose to opt out. There were a few people that the organization had to choose to exit the organization. But then even more importantly, they, they, had to go, um, they had to go find new people that fit the new value set that would, the, that new value set around teamwork to help them get to the place that they wanted to get to. So th- that whole idea of, hey, what's the culture that we want to have? What's the value set that we need to have in place to be able to attract people that will play? That, that will represent that culture and then go find those people, change all the systems, structures, processes, how you recruit, how you select to get people that, that fit that, that set of values that will create that culture that you're looking for. Mm. No, I like that. I like that. And again, listeners, we've been uh, talking with Sean Ryan, uh, author of Getting Gear, The Seven Gears That Drive Strategy to Results. 
you know, Sean, we, we hit on a lot of topics and, and, uh, like I said, I think we could probably talk for another 14, 15 hours on this stuff, but, uh, unfortunately, uh, we are coming up against, uh, that, that kind of hour, uh, wall there. Um, but before, before we do close out, I always like to give guests an opportunity if there's something that we didn't get a chance to touch on that they'd like to share, uh, to do that. So is there anything we didn't touch on you would like to, to share with the listeners? Well, we, we covered a lot of territory, Earl. I had a, I had a blast. I hope you and your listeners uh, have a blast, too. I much enjoyed it. If there's ever a chance for us to get back and do the other 14 hours, I'm in. I would do that in a heartbeat. Hey, consider that invitation extended because I do want to. I, I really do want to do a deep dive on some of these uh, topics uh, uh, in the future. So consider that invitation extended. Yeah, great. So the and I think we touched on this though. The the one thought that I would leave people though is that idea of the the seven gears that attract that connect strategy to results or drive strategy results. You don't have to go fix them all all at once. Um, yeah, think about which gear is maybe the squeakiest, that which gear uh, is, is the most rusted, and make improvements in that gear. You'll be a little bit better off tomorrow than you were today. And then with that being a little bit better off, sucking a little bit less, go work on a different gear and then figure out what the next gear is. And, and then over a period of time, it won't be a matter of just sucking less. It'll be a matter of, man, we really are connecting strategy to results and our organization, our team, our customers are all better for us having headed down that path. Mm, I love it. I love it. So uh, for the listeners on here that, that uh, we've converted to, to true believers in these seven gears, uh, if they want to get a hold of you, you know, maybe have you come work with their organization, find out more about the book, just find out more about uh, you and, and your organization. Uh, what's the best way for folks to uh, to find out more and reach out? Great. And by the way, Earl, we've got a title for those uh, true believers. We call them gearheads. <laughs> and uh, so we're trying to create, we literally are trying to create a community of gearheads. You, it, well, look, we, we would love you to connect with us and have us help you uh, try to get better at these things. But we'd also love for people just to join the community because I, I think there are a lot of people that out there who want to have organizations that are more productive, deliver better results, not just for their customers and for the organization, but for the teams uh, and and the people inside those organizations. So the, the best way to connect with us is through our website, which is www.ici.com. So it's short for Whitewater International Consulting, www.ici.com. Okay. Outstanding, and I'll have that. Uh, I have that link in the show notes, uh, so the listeners can find that, and uh, so so the the converted gearheads can find that and and get in touch with y'all uh, real quick. Well, again, Sean, uh, this has been great. Definitely, uh, we need to work on on uh, having you back on so we can unpack some of these things a little bit deeper. Uh, but I just really appreciate your time and, and having a conversation uh, with myself. I I had a blast. And uh, I can only imagine my listeners did as well. So thank you for your time. Uh, Earl, thank you for your time. And thanks to all your listeners for, uh, you know, jumping in and, and listening. And uh, I had a great time. Look forward to the future. Absolutely. And listeners, uh, you know, thank you for, for sticking with us. Uh, make sure you go get a copy of the book. Uh, start putting some of these gears to, to work. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, you only got to start with one and uh, start seeing those improvements. So that's a, that's a great thing. Um, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, you have a story you'd like to share, a question you'd like answered, a uh, guest you'd like to hear me uh, interview, just reach out at burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. Thank you for your time. Thank you for getting out there, rating, reviewing, sharing the show, helping us get those uh, algorithm uh, numbers working in our favor. So great guests like Sean. Uh, and the message of the seven gears can get spread out. Thank you for everything you do. Really appreciate your time. And I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. 
Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electricast production. Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electricast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electricast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electricast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electricast. Yeah.